From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, May is National Stroke Awareness Month, a lot of awareness months in May. <laughs> and we'll tell you how the letters F, A, S, and T can be your cue to recognizing a stroke and getting emergency treatment. Well, a sudden onset of either weakness of one side of the body, face, arm, or leg, numbness on one side of the body, face, arm, or leg, sudden decreased vision, sudden unsteadiness of walking, sudden difficulty speaking or understanding others. Also on the program, we highlight the work done by emergency medical services personnel and learn more about Mayo Clinic's Air Ambulance Service as we celebrate the beginning of National EMS Week. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the American Heart Association, every 40 seconds, someone in the United States has a stroke. Now, during a stroke, about 2 million brain cells die each minute the stroke goes untreated. I don't know about you, Tracy, but I don't think I got 2 million to spare. <laughs> so, well, even if quick action is taken, it's not surprising that stroke is the leading cause of long-term disability in this country. Three out of every four people who have a stroke have high blood pressure, and it's estimated that better management of hypertension could help prevent about 80% of all strokes. Now, May is American Stroke Month, a time to learn about strokes and what you can do to help prevent them. Well, here to talk about diagnosing, preventing, and treating stroke is Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. Robert Brown. Welcome to the program, Dr. Brown. Nice to see you. Great to be here with you. Thank you. So we know that there are uh, stroke, a very common problem in the United States still, unfortunately, but uh, every stroke is not the same, right? There are different kinds. That's right. There are two main types of stroke. The most common type of stroke, about 85% of strokes, is called an ischemic stroke. That occurs when there's a lack of blood supply to an area of the brain, and the brain cells start to die off because they're not receiving the oxygen-laden blood that is needed to nourish the brain cells. Very similar to when you have a heart attack. Exactly right. Cut off the blood supply to, a, to the, in this case, the brain as opposed to the, the heart muscle. That is correct. And then the other type of stroke is called a hemorrhagic stroke or a bleeding type of stroke. And that occurs when an artery or an aneurysm in the brain ruptures, leading to blood to spill into the brain tissue, causing damage to the brain in that way. And the obviously the first much more common than the uh, second, but there's also a, a third that some people talk about called a TIA. Can you explain that? Well, TIA stands for transient ischemic attack. And a TIA is a situation in which there are symptoms of stroke, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, but symptoms of stroke, but they're transient. They occur several minutes or several hours, and then they resolve. But very importantly, even though those symptoms resolve, it's important for a person to take special note because that is a high risk factor for a future stroke in the days and weeks ahead. The first time that you were ever here with us to talk about TIAs, I realized that's what my family members, that's my grandparents called a spell. Mm, They had a spell. Yes, and oftentimes people will tend to ignore those symptoms because they do resolve. They're transient. And again, TIA stands for transient ischemic attack. Transient, meaning they come and go. 
ischemic, meaning a lack of blood supply to the brain, and attack, meaning they come on quite quickly. And importantly, those symptoms should not be ignored. But why shouldn't they be ignored? Yeah, mm-hmm. why are they important? Mm-hmm. Well, a, a TIA is a strong, what we call risk factor for a future stroke. That is, it's an important warning sign. And if one does go ahead and see a physician, either in the emergency room setting or in a outpatient setting, Testing can be performed to clarify why that TIA occurred. Then we can implement the appropriate medications or surgery or other treatment and thereby lessening the risk of stroke in the days and weeks ahead. Are you more likely to survive an ischemic stroke than you are a hemorrhagic stroke? It's a great question. And it ends up uh, taking it one step further. There are two types of bleeding stroke that are are commonly seen as well. And both of those are very worrisome types of stroke. The likelihood of having a serious outcome, both death as well as disability, is higher with a bleeding type of stroke than it is with an ischemic stroke. You mentioned the TIA, a significant risk factor for having a stroke later on. What are some other risk factors? Mm -hmm. Well, risk factors for stroke, and again, we we think about risk factors as issues that a person can potentially impact upon to lessen their future risk of stroke. And those risk factors include high blood pressure, cigarette smoking, diabetes, and high cholesterol are the most important, if you will, for And then there are other risk factors as well, such as heavy alcohol use, very sedentary lifestyle, that is a lifestyle free of exercise and other activities, obesity, and a sleep disorder called obstructive sleep apnea is also a risk factor for stroke. Really? Sleep apnea, risk factor for stroke. Why? Because of the association with obesity, or is there Mm -hmm. another reason? Well, just to step back for a moment, obstructive sleep apnea is a disorder that can occur both in men and women. It's uh, more common as we get older. And in obstructive sleep apnea, during the course of the night, there are many, many, many episodes in which the oxygen level in the bloodstream Decreases and it's related to how we are breathing during the course of the night. So as those brief episodes of decrease in the oxygen occurs, it has a negative effect both on the arteries up in the brain, but it also has a negative effect elsewhere in the body as well. For example, there is an increased occurrence of an irregular heartbeat called atrial fibrillation, that occurs in obstructive sleep apnea. Mm. And it also ends up, because of those ongoing episodes of decrease in oxygen that are occurring during obstructive Mm. sleep apnea, that's very hard on the arteries in the brain, and that can affect the arteries and lead to narrowing in the arteries, leading to a stroke as well. All right, so you talked about the the main risk factors. Uh, Increased blood pressure, high cholesterol, smoking, diabetes. Correct. Those are the big ones. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, before we break and, and come back and talk more about uh, talk about treatment and prevention of strokes, although you already alluded to that, let's talk about the symptoms. Mm-hmm. What would lead one person to suspect or a family member to suspect that someone was having a stroke? Mm-hmm. Well, a sudden onset of either weakness of one side of the body, face, arm, or leg, numbness, meaning decreased feeling or sensation on one side of the body, face, arm, or leg, often occurring in combination, sudden decreased vision, the ability to see, sudden unsteadiness of walking, sudden difficulty speaking, 
or understanding others. Those would be some of the most common symptoms that would occur. Would a TIA be considered a symptom as well? Could that fall into that category? Yeah, thank you for that question. Actually, those uh, symptoms that I just mentioned, weakness, numbness, speech, vision, and so on, those would be the type of symptoms that would occur in a TIA just as they would occur in a stroke. But the main difference is in a TIA, they're transient. After minutes or hours, they'll go away, and a person will think, I'm fine, I can go on with my activities. But importantly, don't ignore those symptoms. Seek medical care. I can see that, well, it resolved. You know, I couldn't see, or my arm was kind of numb, and then it got better. It got better, Dr. Shive, so why do I need to go in? Yeah, have it checked out. The FAST acronym. Yeah, the FAST acronym, F-A-S-T. The reason to remember that is to consider if if a person may be having a stroke. F stands for face, facial drooping on one side or the other. A stands for arm. Have that person extend their arms out, and if one arm tends to fall down as opposed to the other one that's strong, that can be stroke-related symptoms. S stands for speech. Is their speech slurred? And T stands for time. Every minute counts. Call 911, seek medical care, and we may be able to do something to impact on that stroke. All right, Dr. Robert Brown, he is a neurologist and a stroke expert at the Mayo Clinic. We'll talk more after the break about preventing strokes and how you treat them. When we come back, myth or matter of fact, the risk of stroke increases with age, but young adults, children, and even unborn babies can suffer strokes. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are back talking about strokes during American Stroke Month with Mayo Clinic neurologist and stroke expert, Dr. Robert Brown. Time for Myth or Matter of Fact. Dr. Brown, Myth or Matter of Fact, the risk of stroke increases with age, but young adults, children, and even unborn babies can suffer strokes. Is that a myth or a fact? Well, that is a fact, but I should add the risk of stroke, both ischemic stroke as well as the bleeding type of stroke, hemorrhagic stroke, is extremely uncommon in children and in unborn uh, uh, babies mm-hmm. as well. But you're absolutely right that even in young adults, there is a risk of stroke present. So if the symptoms that we talked about earlier occur, even if you're a young adult, they should not be ignored. Is there something going on differently in the brain or in the body of someone at 35 who has a stroke as opposed to 75 who has a stroke? Is it a different type of thing uh, in a way? Yeah. Some of the types of stroke actually are very similar in somebody 35 compared to 70. But there are other causes of stroke that mainly occur in younger people as opposed to older people. Uh, it ends up there are many, many, many different causes of stroke. And as I mentioned a moment ago, some of those occur in younger people and others like atherosclerosis, meaning plaque in an artery that leads to narrowing. Those are much, that's much more common in older people. So is there a family, can there be a family history of stroke? And if so, is that where that 35-year-old might be more inclined to have one? Well, genetics do play a role in stroke risk. We do know that strokes can run in families, and there are certain uncommon disorders that can run in a family, leading to that younger person to have a stroke. 
But in addition, there are other non-genetic disorders that can occur in younger people as well that can affect their arteries at a young age, that can cause their blood to be more likely to clot compared to someone Mm. else. They might have what we call vasculitis or inflammation in the artery. So a whole number of relatively uncommon causes of stroke that can occur in younger people. All right. You've talked about the risk factors for stroke. And once again, it's important for everyone to know those high blood pressure, high cholesterol, smoking, and diabetes. Correct. And then you also talked to us about the symptoms and the easy way to remember what those symptoms are, including uh, a problem with the uh, face, uh, arms, speech, but then you also talked about time and how important that was. And tell us why that's important and what you can do once a person having a stroke gets to the hospital. Mm -hmm. Well, as we talked about earlier, the most common type of stroke is an ischemic stroke in which there's a lack of blood supply to the brain. And when that blood supply is cut off, truly every minute counts. Every time a minute goes by and that those brain cells are lacking in blood flow, those brain cells are dying off. And so Two the, million of them every minute. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so the faster that we can get in there and do something about that blockage in an artery, the better off that that patient might be. And how do you do that? Mm-hmm. Well, we now have a number of treatments available for stroke, and they continue to evolve over the course of time. When I first came here to visit with you, we really didn't have much in the way of acute treatment options. But then, starting about 20 years ago, we began to have clot busters, clot-dissolving medicines that we could give into the vein or directly into the artery to break up that clot and to start the blood flow again, uh, going again. where time is critical. Where time is critical, exactly. Now, there's something even newer that's come into place over the last couple of years that's becoming very quickly a standard approach to the emergency room setting in the, in the, in the case of stroke, and that is actually going in with a small plastic catheter directly into the artery, directly to the site of the clot up in the brain artery, and literally extracting, pulling out the clot directly from the artery and allowing the blood to begin to flow In the emergency room? Well, they go from the emergency room after the initial assessment okay. is done in the emergency room. They'll go to what's called the angiography suite. Sure. Angiography is a dye study of the arteries in which we can get, develop a very quickly develop a roadmap of what the arteries look like, very quickly identify where is the blockage. And again, a a catheter that I mentioned a moment ago, it's a small plastic tube that's placed in a groin artery, advanced all the way up into the brain artery. The clot can be literally extracted via this tiny, tiny device from within the artery. So it's not a surgical procedure. It's not something that's done from outside the body. It's done from inside the artery. Pretty incredible. Now, so how long have we got? I mean, how long until those, uh, it's not reversible, the stroke is not reversible, the cells are dead, you can't restore their function? Mm-hmm. Well, it depends in part in where in the brain is the stroke occurring and which artery in particular is, is blocked. But we can use the clot-dissolving medicines in many people up to three hours, in some people up to four and a half hours, and that new technique that I mentioned a moment ago, our neuroradiologists and neurosurgeons can use that procedure up to at least six hours and in some people 
even longer than that, depending on the location of the stroke. Wow. Pretty incredible. You have made unbelievable progress. Well, things have changed a lot. Favorite ago. things that you told us about, and uh, I just have to bring it up, is the robots. You're yeah. using robots in some of the far-flung places of the country, out in because I'm a farmer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know those little town hospitals have robots that can help patients. Explain how that works. Well, what you're referring to, Tracy, is telestroke. Right. And in the setting of telestroke, what will occur is a patient will come into a rural hospital, and the initial assessment within the next few minutes, within those first few minutes, will be done at that hospital, and then they will make an audio-video connection back here to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And we can interact with the patient, their family member. We can review the CAT scan, and we can discuss with the physicians and nurses and the patient and their family member what we should do next. And we may well be able to start the clot dissolving medicine right there in that small town and then quickly transfer them, whether it be via ground ambulance or helicopter, and possibly be able to implement even an additional therapy after they transfer to Rochester or some other major medical center. So you may not be able to use the catheter to actually retrieve the the clot and get rid of the clot, but you can get them recommend that they give clot-busting medication. Yeah, that's right. Fortunately, most small hospitals now have CT scanning available, taking a picture of the brain tissue, and also have that clot buster available, so we might be able to start that at the small hospital. Very good. All right, we have uh, a few minutes remaining to talk about prevention, and I suppose that if we know what the risk factors are, we know a little bit about uh, prevention. So part of it is lifestyle, but uh, part of it is, is might be medications that you can use. Tell us about prevention. Yeah. Well, we talked earlier about the four key risk factors and some of the other more minor risk factors, if you will, and each of those can sometimes be impacted by medications, anti-high blood pressure medications, what are called statins, which impact on the cholesterol levels, treatment of diabetes, and helping with smoking cessation. But there may be other procedures that can be performed as well. For example, we sometimes will find that a person has a narrowing in an artery, but they're asymptomatic. They, we find the narrowing. And haven't had a stroke. And haven't had a stroke. And in that circumstance, we'll sometimes perform either a surgical procedure or a balloon procedure called angioplasty to open up that artery even before any symptoms have occurred. And obviously, if you can prevent a stroke, you certainly want to do that. Absolutely. With the strategies we have available in stroke prevention, we should be able to decrease the occurrence of stroke. All right. One more time. Fast. Face, arm, speech, speech, Speech. Speech. and time. Above all else, time. That's what we have to remember from today. Fast, a great acronym. (laughs) Dr. Robert Brown, an expert on stroke, a neurologist at Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for bringing us up to date on the diagnosis, the treatment, and, of course, the prevention of stroke. Good to have you with us. Thank you again for inviting me. Do you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send an email to Mayo Clinic Radio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Ovarian cancer can be very tricky and oftentimes 
Um, it isn't diagnosed until it has spread. That's why Mayo Clinic's Dr. Myra Wick and colleagues study the genes that put women at increased risk of ovarian cancer. Gene sequencing technology um, has just exploded over the last several years. Researchers know that mutations in two genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2, increase risk of ovarian cancer and breast cancer. For carriers of mutations in these genes, the lifetime risk of breast cancer is 40 to 85 percent, and the lifetime risk of ovarian cancer is 15 to 40 percent. If you're tested and we find that there's a gene mutation, um, whether it's BRCA1 or 2 or another gene, um, we may have specific guidelines. Guidelines include screening for ovarian cancer, information about who should consider having surgery to prevent it, and guidelines for how to treat it. Dr. Wick says a blood test is what's needed for genetic testing, and if a woman tests positive, there's a 50% chance she'll pass it on to her kids. It's important for her and for her family members. And in other news, if you've tried and failed to shed pounds by completely removing certain foods from your diet, here's a new idea. Instead of changing your menu, change your amounts. Little tweaks can add up to a savings of hundreds of calories per day. Now here are some tips on how to do it from Mayo Clinic experts. Spread just one tablespoon of peanut butter on a piece of toast instead of two. That saves 94 calories. Layer one slice of cheese on a sandwich and not two. It cuts 113 calories. Now if you measure out one tablespoon of salad dressing instead of two, you'll save 64 more calories and drizzle one teaspoon of oil instead of one tablespoon and save another 84. If you can find something that's lighter or leaner, that's really going to help impact overall calorie intake. Here's another idea. Flip a 90% lean ground beef burger instead of one that's 85% lean and you'll save 37 calories. Collectively, these easy cutbacks shave nearly 400 calories. So just being thoughtful about the how much can really make a difference on the amount of calories you consume, yet not necessarily impacting your enjoyment. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, if you've ever spent some time watching action movies or TV programs from the 50s and the 60s, were you born then? I was. You are likely <laughs> to be familiar then with the, the ambulance scene where the station wagon with the flashing red lights and a siren arrives at the scene of some accident or tragedy. One Adam Twelve. One Adam Twelve. Yeah, that's you, a, you are old enough to yeah, watch Yeah, that's a far cry from today's emergency medical response, which often includes a vehicle equipped with life-saving equipment that makes an emergency room on wheels. And on board these modern critical care vehicles are highly trained emergency medical service workers. May 15th through the 21st is National Emergency Medical Services Week. First recognized by President Ford back in 1973, National EMS Week highlights the essential role that EMS workers play in our public health and safety. Isn't it the truth? And fortunately, they're around a lot of the time. Well, here to tell us more about EMS is Dr. Dennis Loudon. Dr. Loudon is a Mayo Clinic emergency medicine physician and medical director for Mayo One. Mayo Clinic's Air Ambulance Service. Also joining us is Ms. Kelly Saz. She is Director of Clinical Operations, Mayo One, and Mayo Medical Air. Welcome both of you to the program. Thank Good you. Good morning. A couple of high flyers. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, uh, let's start with the EMS uh, program and, and what they do 
and in Rochester you see the Gold Cross ambulances around all the time. Who's manning those those vehicles, and what what can they do, and what do they do? Well, when you see a Gold Cross ambulance, most likely they're staffed by either two paramedics or a paramedic and an EMT. So and there's a difference, huh? Big difference. When you look at it, there's a continuum. The most basic EMS provider is what we used to call first responder, and they're now called emergency medicine responder. And they have a 40-hour course when they start out, and then they have to recertify every two years. Now, these are the people that you would see in large factories. The EMRs are also what you would see in many of the small communities. They're the ones who respond first when that call goes out. The next level up is the uh, EMT or the emergency medical technician. Now, to become an EMT, that's, that's a... Uh, 120-hour course, and then you have to recertify every two years. And these are the, usually the ones who transport you to the hospital. So they have an increased level of care. They can help with advanced airways. Uh, they can do defibrillations. They can do IVs, things like that. The next level up then is the paramedic. To be a paramedic, that's a 1,200-hour course. You have to certify every two years. Most of them are nat- nationally registered. And then the continuum up from that was some paramedics become flight paramedics, and then we have flight nurses. So in Mayo 1, we'd have a flight nurse and a flight paramedic staffing the helicopter in each call. So let's go over that again. So you got the EMR. EMR is the most basic. All right. Then the EMT, emergency medical technician. Correct. And then 1,200 hours of schooling, you become a, a paramedic. paramedic. After you pass a national test. And then if you want to go a little bit further, if you want to fly in the helicopter, then you become a flight paramedic. And what's involved there? Kelly? Uh, they go through a 12-week orientation once they come to us. They have to have a very high-level call volume, about 5,000 calls of experience before they can come to us. And the nurses have three years of critical care or ICU experience. Once they come into the work unit, they have a 12-week orientation. It's tailored to what their uh, experience level is, and then they're put into a one-year residency program. So you can't be a flight paramedic unless you've been on 5,000 ground our current, calls. That's our current entry level, yes. Wow. So these are pretty highly trained people. Yes, they are. And do, do you have enough people who want to do it? We do. Mm-hmm. i got to ask you, every once in a while you hear about one of the helicopters going down. How big a concern is that, and what, what generally happens in those instances? Uh, well, we have a very safe program. We have state-of-the-art technologies and um, safety features in our aircraft. Our fixed-wing aircraft are staffed with two pilots, and all of our rotor-wing aircraft are single-pilot rated uh, aircraft, so they all have a backup autopilot as well. So, oh, we, so, so there's only one pilot in the helicopter? Correct. And then the backup is the autopilot, so, which so serves as a second. So if something happened to the pilot, it, it, the helicopter could land? No, it would still need pilot input. So the autopilot only takes it to a certain level, and then obviously to land it, you would have to have someone on the controls. Oh, okay, but there's only one person on there who knows how to do that? Correct, for the helicopter, (laughs) correct. But these are young guys. They're young guys. They have rigorous (laughs) medical physicals. Our aerospace medicine division here at Mayo Clinic does all of their physicals for them, so they're required to do those annually, so... So the two people that are sitting up front there, one is the pilot, and the who's the other person sitting up front? When we go out to a call, one of the medical crew members is up front just to help with any navigation needs or um, those kinds of things with the pilot. And then on the way back, one uh, crew member is in the airway seat and performs all the airway interventions for the patient, and the other provider is in the care patient seat, and they would be doing any of the interventions that the patient would need, whether it be medications, placing an IV line, doing advanced airways, chest tubes, those kinds of things. I just have a question. What's the difference between Mayo 1 and Mayo Air? Uh, well, we're actually just going through a rebranding. So before we had a vendored uh, service for our 
our Mayo Med Air Service, which is our fixed-wing aircraft. Mm-hmm. So that serves any patients that exceed the 150-mile uh, radius. So once we go through that rebranding and we get on our own air uh, carrier shift, certificate here in July, um, that service will now be called Mayo One as well. Gotcha. When you get a 911 call and there's an, an ambulance required at, at whatever the event is, uh, whether it's a car accident or a heart attack or stroke, etc., um, the two people who are in there, is one of them always a paramedic or do you only send a paramedic when you think they'll be needed? If it's a Gold Cross ambulance responding, one of them, at least one is always a paramedic. And they are trained to be able to do what? A lot more than they used to, right? Oh. And are they are in uh, constant communication with you back in the, in the emergency right. department? They have a very extensive protocol that they are well informed of. They know what they can do. Whenever they have questions, they can contact someone at the emergency department of the St. Mary's 24-7. So let's say someone has just had a, a heart attack mm-hmm. or cardiac arrest. What, what actually are they able to do? Um, so if they're having a heart attack, Gold Cross for several years now, actually can activate the cath lab at St. Mary's. So if, if I'm having chest pain and they come out to my house, they'll do a 12-lead ECG. And if I meet criteria for an ST elevation MI, they will actually activate the cath lab. So the cardiologist, if it's off hours, will come home, be in the cath lab. Gold Cross will bring that patient through the emergency room right up to the cath lab. All right. Now, the cath lab is the place where they would inject the dive, right, figure out where the, the blockage angiogram. was, and balloon out or get rid of the clot. Right. Reverse the heart attack. Right. Restore the blood flow to the heart. Correct. So that guy, the cardiologist, the heart specialist, can be in position when the ambulance hits the ER. Right. And they can bypass us in many cases and save, saving minutes and go right upstairs to get their angiogram. Now, what about medications? What are they able to, to give with regard to, to medications oh, for they can heart give, patients or stroke patients? They have antiarrhythmics. They have nitroglycerin. They have uh, all kinds of pain medications as needed. So do they give that under your direction, or are they able to do that the on main, their own? When they would start out with that patient, it would be under our medical protocols. And then they would follow through our protocols. And if anything deviates, then they would call for our medical direction. But majority of the time, they can just run through the protocols that we set up, and we don't even need to contact us. They're able to start an IV? Oh, yes. That's, I suppose, important in a lot of uh, instances. Right. What are true emergencies? What's the most common thing that they're, where they end up actually treating, giving drugs, starting an IV? What are the true emergencies that you see? Well, chest pain whether it's a heart attack or not, but some sort of chest pain, probably shortness of breath, whether it's uh, emphysema or COPD or asthma would be the two big ones that they would probably use medication for right away. Uh, trauma, some sorts of accidents where they have fractures, they would need pain medication. Those would probably be the biggest three. Why is it, do you, why is it important to make the observance of National Emergency Medical Services Week? Oh, very important. When you look at these people, the you know, Gold Cross, of course, are paid paramedics. But when you look around the small communities of Minnesota and the U.S., a lot of these services are volunteers. So not only do these people give up 120 hours to become an EMT, but they take call really for nothing. They're, so this is volunteerism at its best. I mean, you're not going to find a better group that's more competent and caring and hardworking who do this out of the goodness of their soul. So I think at least once a week, once a year, if not once a week, we should recognize them. Yeah, we ought to have a party for them. We should. Hey, should Kelly, have made a cake. Yeah. <laughs> Kelly, I have a question for you. Sure. How do you decide uh, if there's an accident uh, or a patient who, who needs emergency care? How do you decide whether to send the ambulance or send the helicopter? Well, when the call comes into our dispatch center, they, they know what the criteria are to launch a helicopter. And 
again, our paramedics are very well versed in what they can and cannot handle. And if it's going to exceed their capabilities, they'll call for us early if they get on scene. We have an auto launch program um, in the regional area. So the dispatcher knows that if it meets a certain speed metric, if there's a death in the vehicle, those kinds of things, they know that we need to be launched. And the paramedics, once they get on scene, if they don't need us, they can cancel us. That auto launch is sort of, is sort of interesting. Tell us exactly how that works. So when the call comes in, uh, they have the criteria, and they would automatically launch us to that location. So if they needed the resource, because sometimes law enforcement is the first one on scene, so they might not have a lot of medical background. So if they think that the patient meets that criteria, they'll let um, the dispatcher know, and the dispatcher will have us there as a resource when they need us. Obviously, sometimes the paramedics beat us there, and if they do their patient assessment and they deem that they don't need us, then they can cancel us. All right, it's National Emergency Medical Services Week. We have two guests, Dr. Dennis Loudon, who's an emergency room physician, and also Ms. Kelly Saws, who's Director of Clinical Operations for Mayo One and Mayo Medical Air. We'll be back to talk more emergency medicine right after this. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Well, it is National Emergency Medical Services Week. There's a lot of d- named weeks in this month of May, aren't there? <laughs> is there a Hallmark card is the bigger point? <laughs> well, there should be. Uh, we are with the Medical Director of Mayo One, Dr. Dennis Loudon, and also Ms. Kelly Saws, who's Director of Clinical Operations for Mayo One and Mayo Medical Air. So, Kelly, I want to ask you, the pilots who... Um, who are in the helicopter. Where do you get these pilots, and, and what's their training? And did most of them have a military career? Several of them do have military careers because it's so cost prohibitive to have a civilian um, experiences to be able to acquire the hours that are needed to fly in an EMS configuration. So many of them are military trained. They have hundreds and hundreds of hours before they come to us. So you have how many pilots in the hospital at, at, at any one time? We have one pilot assigned to each aircraft, and then for a fixed-wing operation, we always fly a dual pilot uh, configuration for for the airplane. Uh, so when the when the helicopter goes, there's the pilot, and then did you say there's a, a flight nurse and then a paramedic? Correct. Okay. Correct. So three, so three person crew. Yep. And how many people can you can you fit in the back of the helicopter? How many injured? people? We can carry two patients. Uh, we do have you know, helicopters in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and Mankato, Minnesota. So if we have a patient that's really high acuity, we would prefer to launch one of the other helicopters to care for that second patient. But if we have two patients that are maybe moderate acuity, we can carry two patients. And, and what keeps you from going? What keeps you from flying the helicopter? Is it, is it always weather? Typically weather, yep. So direct icing conditions, lightning, thunderstorms, those kinds of things. Um, in this time of the year, we have a lot of fog issues. So it's all rated in the morning. We have our weather statuses. It's all based on ceilings and the miles of visibility uh, in order for us to go. So the pilots do that weather check. We have um, weather uh, reporting right on top of St. Mary's Hospital. So pilots can check that right away in the morning and then um, the other two bases are located at the airport so the pilots at those locations check the weather and they know what what our conditions are before we start our day and i assume you have gps obviously and it wasn't it sort of difficult to kind of find where you needed to go before the gps i mean they know exactly what they probably just lock the helicopter in on the yep it is very precise now with the gps um, capabilities how about the cost 
um, of um, sending the helicopter versus ground transport. Uh, well, Let's see how diplomatic she can be here. <laughs> <laughs> must be a significant difference. Um, obviously, there's a lot of assets with aviation. It is more cost um, costly than a ground transport. However, we're not really making money on that. We're our fees are tied to cover our costs. So a lot of the things that you hear in the media about price gouging are really uh, not something that our program does. We really um, have our fees set just to cover our costs and the equipment that we carry to handle the patient condition. Dr. Loudon, I was wondering, in the years that you have worked in medicine, have you always been in the emergency room? Yes, I've worked there since 1993. And how... How much have things changed oh. since 1993, which doesn't seem that long ago, by the way. No, it actually doesn't, does it? <laughs> uh, a lot of things have changed. Rochester has changed. It's a lot uh, larger city in many ways. Uh, 23 years is long enough to see things that we initially did go out of favor and fully come back in, certain medications and things. But I think what I've seen is probably the biggest improvement has been the trauma care. Um, it's a much more organized system than it was when I started in the 1990s, and the care the trauma patients receive is just in- simply incredible anymore. And uh, isn't it interesting how much the trauma has increased over the years? In fact, when I was a resident here, it wasn't that long ago. But <laughs> was it 1993? Yeah, <laughs> a little before that. Okay. That there, you know, it was a wonderful program in orthopedics here. But the one issue we had with the residency program was that there wasn't enough trauma. In fact, we, as residents, would fight over fixing mm-hmm. somebody's hip. And now we have four full-time trauma surgeons, uh, orthopedic trauma surgeons. So it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And why is that? I mean, the population obviously has increased, uh, but is it partly because you're going and picking them up in the helicopter? Mm-hmm. Or what? why is it that there's so much more trauma than there used to be? Well, population, we have a lot more fast and fun toys that get us into trouble. We um, do go out further to bring them in. I mean, with the helicopter and the fixed wing and then the regional trauma program, people tend to group them more, so we see a lot more trauma here than we used to coming from afar. How about, Kelly, Does do most insurance companies, health insurance companies, pay for the helicopter? For auto accidents, typically, yeah, yeah. your auto insurance does cover that. Okay, and what's the furthest you can go with the helicopter? We try to stay within 150 miles. And how fast does the helicopter go? It averages about two miles a minute. You can so tell he loves that the helicopter. Miles per hour. <laughs> right? In miles per hour, how that? That's like 120? Yeah, it depends on winds and temperature and those kinds of things, but roughly about two miles a minute. So there are two beds in the back. You could take two patients or do we, we one have, have one to be bed sorry? and then the other one would be a stretcher that we would strap to the floor. How many lives do you think you've actually saved? Where it really makes a difference? Uh, by having the helicopter? Well, I don't think we can give you a number. Sure. But I think if you look now compared to 20 years ago, who's surviving the same sort of traumatic injuries? People are surviving and they're coming out in much better shape than they did 20 years ago because of programs like Mail One. All right. Well, you know what? We're glad you're both here. That's Congratulations right. Congratulations. And, and thanks so much for joining us on the program. Dr. Dennis Loudon is Medical Director for Mayo One, and Ms. Kelly Saz is Director of Clinical Operations for Mayo One and Mayo Medical Air. Thanks to you both. Thank Thank you. you. That's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. 
Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We will be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our writer and social media editor for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.